0: Welcome to another episode of The Art Salon. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends on social media. To keep up with our latest guests and announcements, be sure to follow us at The Art Salon on Instagram. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit the support section on the Anchor website, where you can contribute to the podcast as little as $1 a month. Every little bit helps. Today's guest is one of my best friends. His name is Gustav Melander. For those of you who don't know him, I will read a short bio from the Yamaha Artist page. Gustav Milander is regarded as one of Europe's most talented young trumpet players, having studied with Bo Nilsson and Professor Hoken Hardenberger at the Malmo Academy of Music. Since graduating, Gustav has gone to become one of the most in-demand players in Europe. Currently, the tenured co-principal trumpet of the Malmö Symphony Orchestra, Gustav also regularly features with other Scandinavian orchestras, such as the Swedish Radio Symphony Orchestra, Royal Stockholm Philharmonic, and the Oslo Philharmonic Orchestra. As a soloist, Melander performs regularly and has made notable solo appearances, making his debut in 2014 with the Malmö Academy of Music Symphony Orchestra, and in December 2016 performed Box Brandenburg Concerto No. 2 with the Malmö Symphony Orchestra. He has also appeared with Ensemble Intercontemporain, and regularly plays with many of the British orchestras in London. Passionate about music education, Melander has a number of students and has been a trumpet teacher at the Malmö Academy of Music since 2015. This conversation was had almost two years ago, and I can't believe it took me this long to release it. I met Gustav in the summer of 2016 at the Chosen Vale International Trumpet Seminar, where we hit it off right away, and it became one of those very close friendships in a very short period of time. Before the pandemic, I used to visit Gustav regularly in Malmo and spend time with his family, while I would also take lessons with Håkon Hardenberger and take an opportunity to play with him as much as possible. Gustav and I see eye to eye on a number of issues, and he is one of my favorite people to talk to, but I also consider him one of the most important voices, or young voices, in the European scene. He can see the full scope of a lot of the problems that are facing music in today's world, especially music education, and I find him a fascinating person to discuss many of these issues with. He is also somebody who shares a quality with many of my favorite people, including Tom Stevens, Hogan Hardenberger, and many, many others, which is an incredible integrity when it comes to his own artistic values. This makes Gustav a real powerhouse, not just as a player, but also intellectually. So I'm very happy to share this discussion with the world, even though it's been so long, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. And Gustav, buddy... I miss you. Can't wait to see you again. Talk to me about what it is. It was like, or or it is like to have had the mentors that you had because Boo Bu- Nielsen and Hokan are both kind of music forward. Yeah. People.
1: You know, let's start with Boo then because he was my first teacher, let's say. Mm-hmm um he opened my eyes both for the for the trumpet uh, how to play and all all that he was very much into because he said himself he had all the troubles playing the trumpet and you know we did a lot of very basic things and all all that stuff you need to do we did the clark we did the stamp at schlossberg and, and everything but at the end of the day he was a very musical person and always in the end, that was the most important thing you know Yes, he was I mean he was very important for trumpet in in Sweden. He brought you know he brought the piccolo trumpet and he you know really widened the, the the view of the trumpet in in uh, in Sweden uh, and after him it was uh, you know Håkan. and he he and he widened the perspective of the whole world, you know.
0: Uh. (laughs) how how i mean do you know how that happened i mean i have actually never talked to you or to hokan about it like how is it possible that mama back then because that was like before the bridge and before it is the city it is now like how is it possible that you guys ended up and i mean like how i mean literally how how did it happen that if you know that yeah, yeah. yeah. Such, a, such a place ends up with such a like international figure. I mean, he was hanging out with Pierre Thibault and Stamp yeah. and all these guys and Stevens. And it's like, how, you know?
1: I mean, at the end of the day, like, Boo made it possible, I would say. He was very curious and he wouldn't give up until he got out what he needed from the trumpet or, Let's say if he had a problem, he would go to the end of the world to get information. I mean, when he was young, he started very young in the orchestra where I play now. And, and he, he, did, he didn't care that it was a thousand kilometers away. He would go there to get the information. And he studied with so many of the great. He met Stamp, he met Caruso, he met Thibault and... And really, he was also good at, you know, seeing what was good and, and, and not, uh, and could uh, filter what, what was good. And then he, and he was also very good as a teacher to give that curiosity on to us, I think. You know, Håkan is the same way, I find, and, and I have learned a lot from Hokan there as well. You know, there's always, uh, there's always more to learn. There's always something else. There's always... New possibilities in, in anything. Uh, and Boo was uh, an amazing teacher in that way because he gave you that drive you needed.
0: And you were the last crop of his students, right? Before he stepped down. Yeah, I was. And then you took over his job, essentially, right?
1: That's right. Yeah, I took over uh, at the academy from, uh, from uh, Boo. And Hokan uh, is also he's the Håkan is the professor, and I do the weekly, let's say, uh, work with the students. It's a small class, but you know we we do, I think we do a good, good job of continuing the the tradition, let's say.
0: Uh, How old were you when you got uh, both the job at the orchestra and the job at the conservatory?
1: I was 22 when I got the job in the orchestra, and 23 at the conservatory.
0: Do you find, I mean, maybe this is just a notion I have, but do you find that um, in Europe it's more common for institutions to give young people a, a, a foot in the door, basically, to give them a position?
1: It depends a little bit where you are, but yes. Maybe. I'm, I'm not sh- absolutely sure how it works in America, but uh, people tend to be more and more careful, though, here, I think, to give people a chance to grow with the job. Uh, people, people, want, people want a very young guy with 20 years experience.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, we at least uh, in our orbit, there's you who are my age, so that's twenty nine thirty now. Yeah, um, 29. Yeah. 29, yeah. And uh, you've had this job since 23. And then yeah. we have uh, Lucas, who got that job at 21, 20? 20, yeah. At the yeah. Ensemble Turk We know Mario Martos Nieto in, in the uh, Bavarian radio. Also like 20-something. Um, the Berlin Phil has had multiple kind of attempts at hiring very young people. London, Phil Cobb, he was, what, 20? 20, 21,
1: yeah. 21? Jason Evans in the Philharmonia was 19, I
0: think. Yeah, that's unheard of, at least for Trumpet here in the United States. It used to be common back in Tom's era. Yeah. Um, and even okay. in Ed and, and Mark Gould's era, but it's it's completely gone now. That uh, You do have people our age, so in their... Or late 20s, early 30s who get their first principal trumpet job at uh, minor orchestras, but you don't often see them in major ensembles.
1: Yeah. Okay. But do they have a job before or do they have to have like a stepping stone to get in the, in the major orchestras or is it...
0: Yes, it's kind of like, uh, I don't think the LA Philharmonic or the New York Philharmonic or any of the big five or any of the B plus orchestras are hiring anyone that hasn't already had some job, no matter how their training is.
1: And how does the auditions work? Is everybody welcome or?
0: Sort of. Uh, So it's sort of done by your degrees. Uh, So if you have a master's degree or a doctorate, you're kind of automatically invited. If you've had a position in an orchestra, you're automatically invited. If you come from certain schools because their teachers are well-regarded, you're automatically invited. And to be honest, if you get denied an invitation, if you feel strongly about it, you can always appeal. And I've never had an appeal not uh, result in an invite. So it's okay. However, I mean, the, the... there are they they It's not that they already know who they want often the the auditions end up with you know whoever was going to win it wins it, but uh-huh. they do auto advance people that are in a different level, so getting oh. out of a first round when in the second round and final there's already the guarantee of another principal from another big job already i mean as a young person it, it you would really have to be something. Out of this world to to land yourself in one of the big five before the age of thirty six or something like that, mm-hmm. which yeah. didn't used to be the case. I mean, you used to have uh, trumpet players at least as fourth trumpets in the Chicago Symphony right out of school, and uh, yeah, you know.
1: I mean, it's it's uh, they lose the thing when you when you come young to an orchestra, you really form yourself to that orchestra in some way as well, and and build on the tradition in that orchestra, that's a thing that happens, I think, globally, that since everything is so international now and uh, so easy to get around, everything sounds more and more the same anywhere you go.
0: And we've had this discussion so much with uh, Mark Gould and everyone Uh that 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 I've talked to so far talks about that that the uh, the universal like uh, not the universality the unification of sound yeah uh, mostly through a, like uh, as mark Gould put it that was before you know orchestras had personalities before the gospel of the trumpet was revealed to everyone <laughs> yeah yeah but you know i think you know that... well,
1: now we now we do our you know very much, we do our stamp everybody and and perfect our sound in a way and we lose maybe a little bit the character sometimes
0: yeah and it's good i mean i i think it's good that everyone's playing better every year uh yeah. I just i the part i'm not so happy about is that um uh, what you said i don't think that people are given the opportunity to be in in the job and there's kind of this, maybe you can talk about this because I don't have a job like you do, like in a, in an orchestra. Uh, mm-hmm. But I mean, in my experience in orchestras uh, as a freelancer, um, it strikes me that it's, it, we glorify how difficult the job is. Like we, ha- we know plenty of people that if given the chance in a year would be perfectly fine orchestral players, right? Yes, yes.
1: I mean, I, 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 no, I know about my own experience. I mean, I was five years at college. Four. And then I started the job. And I did a lot of uh, subbing and stuff. But since I got the job, I haven't developed that. I'm, I've developed much more when I got the job than the five years in college, in a way. In many ways.
0: Is there anything that could have given you that experience except being in the chair? No
1: i can't see that no
0: yeah and you know i think that that's kind of i don't know how is it how is it in you like let's say you're not you uh let's mm-hmm. say you're one of your colleagues that didn't end up with this opportunity um, yeah and it's not like it was handed to you you won the job fair and square but let's say yeah. let's say you hadn't gotten that or or uh the job hadn't been available yes yeah. uh, what are the ways in Europe that, that people or not what are the ways what is the pathway that typically people are following in Europe to uh, out of school so like here in America you know the, the top people are jumping from conservatory to conservatory to conservatory uh, so you see people that go from Juilliard to Colburn to Rice to Northwestern and you know they go through every mm-hmm. school every and you know conservatories here have tremendously powerful and good orchestra so I mean they're getting yeah. Some experience there. And then if they still haven't gotten a job, they go to New World Symphony or they go to the orchestra now. How how is it in Europe? Because it's so different than here.
1: Um, Well, in Scandinavia, it can be a bit similar. We don't have these, you know, in in, uh, Germany and uh, other European orchestras, they often have these uh, academy positions, which which is normal. And people actually, actually get to sit in the orchestra. You know, the Karajan Academy in Berlin and every German orchestra has an academy position for every instrument. Uh, so that's very used in, in Germany and, and uh, Europe. Uh, we lack that in Sweden, Scandinavia in general, I think, these schemes. London has loads of these, uh, you know, the South Bank Symphonia, for instance. You, you go for two years of, you know, orchestra training. Intensely. Uh, we lack that a little bit in Sweden. So uh, here it's a little bit more like in, in the U.S., not to that degree, I think. People trying to freelance until opportunity comes up and they'll you're lucky or good enough to win an audition uh, so
0: i mean i was uh, you, you know I was out there for um the Gothenburg Opera audition in Sweden yeah and i it I mean, it's kind of like a little secret, and maybe we shouldn't talk about it but uh I was shocked when I got there because it's a major opera house in Europe, right. And there mm-hmm. were 11 applicants or 17.
1: Oh, that's, a, that's not much, no.
0: But, you know, compare that to a, a month and a half later, I went to the Chicago Lyric Opera here and there were three days of preliminary rounds. It was like 150 people.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's closer to the number we would get in Malmö. But I think Malmö is lucky, you know, we we have so good connections with the uh, Copenhagen Airport. Uh, and, and so uh, I think it has to do with that as well and I think the states, I mean it's, it's, it's huge but it's still one country uh, with a lot of people.
0: I, do you feel like there's more, I mean you now have also the experience of London, is the dream of the orchestral job as big in Europe as it is here in America?
1: Yeah, I would say absolutely.
0: That's crazy man. I mean, I don't know where where this went so wrong. <laughs>
1: yeah. For one, it's the, one of the more secure jobs you can have. I mean, it's it's a safety uh, to have it, but I mean, it's not for everybody, and everybody should absolutely not do it. Uh, there are other ways to play the trumpet, for sure. But I think people want the security, and uh, and also if you get if you land a good job, you you automatically get some, you get a name for yourself. You know? it's a way it's a stepping stone to many other things maybe
0: yeah i understand the appeal of the job i'm just curious Mm. um maybe this is an interesting thing just to go back to boo and 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 uh, hokan as teachers um yes because in hokan's case too if you think about pierre thibault and also about uh, tom stevens uh, they were not teachers that were particularly interested in the quote-unquote orchestral um Technique, mm-hmm. so to speak uh, sure. there, was, there was this idea At least with the two of them With Thibaut and, and Tom That the most important thing Was to be a trumpet player And yeah. that that technique Did not mean something For an orchestra player Or for no. Maurice Andre That it was sort of the same thing um, It was just yeah. You applied it to different facets Of your playing uh, Which is not yes. true anymore I mean, some of the most uh, Celebrated teachers here in America Nowadays are orchestral jocks i mean they don't teach anything other and they're their players mm-hmm. i mean you find these trumpet players that are just phenomenal i mean the level of playing in america is astounding but they have mm-hmm. a hard time getting through the hindemith sonata because they play it like it's a muller symphony yeah, um, yeah, yeah. so i don't know why don't you tell me like what well, w- w- even because B- you, you heard was it, never but yeah, just, was just never to finish like that, that thought just to finish that thought. Sorry, i mean you're, yeah. you're you're somebody with a job in europe in an orchestra in in our age group, that's why I want to know like what your education was like because in a way your education was sort of last last decade or last last fifty mm. years. You had the education of people that would have had it fifty years ago, and not what you might get today. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Boo was he? He was an orchestral player. Uh, he was second trumpet here in Malmo, uh, but he did so many other things, and his his main. We never talked about how to play in an orchestra, ever. We would do the excerpts, but he would, never, he would not in a, in a, you know, not a lot. <laughs> and he would never overanalyze it as some people do, I found. So I learned to play the trumpet and also to understand music in a way that, I mean, helps me a lot in the job. And then I found I find many people learning excerpts and how to play them in an audition but until you have played it you know as a, as a piece with, with an, in a concert with orchestra and conductor you, you don't really understand the excerpt really um, so it's two different things and I think one of the reasons I won the audition I did was I, I I prepared with Håkan uh, the excerpts and I think he very rarely does them but he just sees, saw it as music and he he. I remember playing them from for him and he was like what what are you what are you what are you doing I was like what what I'm playing the excerpt no no you're just playing notes <laughs> you know he he was the First one, you know, he he was curious as always, and you know, you, you can do this. I mean, they are—it's simple music, really. It's little tunes we play, and we should treat them as that, also. Not not so overanalyze it too much, I,
0: I think. Do you, um... Man, I What you said is true. That, and this is why in America, I think the big orchestras want to hire somebody who's already had a job. I understand mm. the impulse. I understand the impulse of saying, oh, God, do we really want to have a year of problems? Um, or not Not even problems, but of, of not top level, right?
1: Well, we're in an era which so many orchestras and so many people live stream. And people think they can't afford a bad concert. People are very careful.
0: Yeah. I'm- why can't we afford a bad concert? I mean, I just don't get that. It's uh whatever. That's... I mean, I, I mean, and I don't know. Tell me a little bit. Maybe you can explain something to me. Yeah, can, no, I, I,
1: I, I I agree with you. In these Corona times, we have done concerts, uh, but with no audience and live streaming. I know for I know for myself how I play. I think more about oh, I can't mess up even more now. Uh, I think it does. Bad things as well, the live streaming, and it's good, it's good in one way because we can reach out in these times. But it's a strange feeling; um, it's not ideal, I think. Yeah, I mean, we you're lucky. The...
0: You're lucky that there's live streaming, but uh, you're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it, it adds that, uh, and maybe it's because we're taught to think that way. We're taught to think in recording mode, like yeah. don't don't mess that up. But on the other hand. Um, John Wallace and I were talking about how hopefully one of the good byproducts of live streaming, not for something like the Momo Symphony where you guys have professional everything, but everyone else is doing kind of at home shit. Uh, Mm. John was curious uh, if, you know, he thinks that maybe this will bring us back to an era where we're not so concerned about the quality of everything in that kind of detailed garbage that kind oh, of you know
1: yeah i haven't thought about that in, in that way actually that's also true but i think there's so many people studying now and the more the most critical person i think in an audience is a is a student once you have started being a professional uh, playing you know how it's like you you, you listen in a, in a different way i think students should different should you know think about how they listen not not with the critical ear, not looking for mistakes. You
0: know. Yeah, and and I think the thing that we forget. I I, I remember being a student and thinking the same thing. Going to concerts of the Montreal Symphony and uh, thinking, oh, so and so didn't have a good night, and what a sad mm. thing! What a sad thing to take away from a concert of Beethoven or yeah. Mahler.
1: Yeah, which probably had amazing uh, other things happening than person who didn't have their best night, which will happen to everybody. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. <laughs> and also at that point, why are you listening to a whole symphony from the point of view of the trumpet or, or of the flute, yeah. a flute player? Why aren't yeah. you listening to the whole, who cares if the trumpet player really screwed up that uh, little solo? Because did you hear what the concert master was doing? I don't know. It's...
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I remember because I, when, when I was uh, on trial for the job in Malmö, we were a few, and I went to a concert because I lived in Malmö at the time as well and Hokan was the soloist playing Haydn and something else I don't remember what but I, I had to leave because in the Haydn trumpet concerto when Håkan was playing I, I couldn't focus on Hokan. I was only listening to the first trumpet uh, which made me quite angry with myself and I just left but I think many many students have the wrong idea when they go to concert and I don't think they get the most out of it listening in that way
0: well, and the sad part is then if, if that student becomes uh, the principal trumpet of an orchestra or the second, third trumpet, and God forbid, the teacher at the conservatory, that's when mm. you start getting into trouble because that person who learned in college to uh, listen so critically instead of musically is now teaching students to play critically and not musically.
1: Yeah. I mean, hopefully they will learn with the job and their eyes would widen maybe hopefully <laughs> but yeah that's that's an issue, and I think it's happening more and more.
0: I mean, I want to go back to what you said about boo and 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 I know from experience also with Hokan the part of the training that is so musical in that type of teaching has that mm. helped you more in your life than anything else, or what what is the thing that has uh that has given you the success that you've had and that you keep having? I think
1: to have a more musical approach to everything helps with whatever I do you know I think more in the way how can I play this in this way that I want it it makes me more curious in a way and then if I can't do it on the trumpet then I have something to practice you know to get it that way instead of the other way around how do I technically play it in the most easy way and then that's how it's going to sound like do you understand my the two different points Yeah, but yeah. Talk,
0: talk a little bit more in depth about that oh <laughs> if you want, <laughs> I mean, because it's true it's, if there's, it's a completely different approach to say what are my limitations and how do I get around them and then to look at a piece of music and say what does this piece of music need regardless of, of how adequate or inadequate I am
1: and that's what, that's what, that's how we would learn anything with Håkan and also with exercises, you know, you would look at it and say, how do you want this to sound? And then you would practice until you get that, you know, the curiosity of how things could sound, you know, the, 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 don't limit yourself to the trumpet, you know, look, look beyond and see what we can do. It's the classic quote. With, uh, for instance, the Hocken says it all the time, and comes from Thibault. Uh We have two ways on the trumpet to start a note. On the violin, there's a million. <laughs> on the trumpet, is we get it, get it, or we miss it.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but it, it, there's so much more to the things we the pieces we have, you know that. We forget or we don't care about, and that's true in the orchestra as well. I mean, sometimes you you, you play the uh, maybe a symphony, then you think, ah, oh, this is easy and this this doesn't matter. But still, a composer actually wrote the notes to be played. You can, it's also more fun to see, you know, why do I play these notes in a Mozart symphony? They they they, they do matter. <laughs> we can't we can't sit and think that they don't because then it starts. Then it's a slippery slope.
0: yeah and and uh, it goes back to that what we were saying it's uh the same mentality that makes a student only listen to and not just students that we've all been indoctrinated to think so critically of everything that happens and uh, yeah so centered on our instrument if if as a musician you're concerned with how boring sitting through don giovanni is which it is but you're not listening to everything around you and taking that as an Mm. incredible opportunity. I mean, how lucky are you if you work at an opera house to sit in a pit with world class musicians playing Don Giovanni and Mm. you're there in the closest possible setting you could be. Now, I understand that over the years, that might get tiring, but I agree with you. I mean, to take uh, Beethoven's uh, little trumpet five ones and say, Oh, well, you know, whatever. It's kind of It's silly. I mean, he's the greatest composer of that time period.
1: Yeah, you know, you can Beethoven is really fun to play if you, you know, you have a very good. I have a very close, very good relationship with the timpani players of the orchestra. We have, I mean, especially if you have a very good conductor and and it's uh, and I mean, I have great colleagues. I can listen to them and you know try to add something.
0: I think your orchestra is awesome, man. I I. I've heard you guys a couple of times when I've been down to visit you. Um, yeah.
1: No, it's great. And we have a great new hall, which is just just fabulous.
0: You guys have everything that, and I'm not saying that it's going to be a historic orchestra, but you guys have all the, all the components that make the historic groups, which is very young people. Yeah. You guys have a very young orchestra that had a huge turnaround recently. And then you guys have a new hall, which is just mm-hmm. badass and everyone's kind of excited about it. I mean, the, the feeling from me hanging out with you uh, these years in that hall and around your colleagues is that everyone's excited to be with each other. There's very little kind of, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's drama and all sorts of stuff, but everyone's, you know, after the concert, there's a large group of people that stay and hang out with each other. And, and you guys are friends and you guys do chamber music together and practice yeah. together.
1: Yeah. No, it's great group. Absolutely,
0: exciting, exciting time. And uh, why don't we move a little bit? Tell me about you've recently taken some steps to move your career to a more international stage as well, right? And you've been you've you've been working a fair amount in London. How's that experience been?
1: Oh, that's been great. London is so vibrant, very different in many ways, but it's uh, high tempo. Amazingly good orchestras, of course, uh, the way they play together is is uh, just a joy to to be a part of. They're very fast readers, as everybody may know, and it just makes life very easy so, to play there and it, very, very friendly always I'm in the orchestras I played in and Of course, uh, high expectations, but the the collegiality, can you say that? Yeah. Collegiality is just great, amazing. Everybody wants everybody to play well. You're there for each other in a way.
0: That's a good feeling. How about the, I mean, London is the only place in, I mean, I guess it's not Europe anymore, but in Europe. that. that is similar in pace to north america in the sense that the 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 fast pace of london is very comparable to the fast pace of los angeles for example uh, yeah. uh how how has that impact been coming from malmo uh, where things are a little bit more I, I in some ways i think much better because i i like mm. this idea of slowing everything down being with your colleagues knowing your orchestra very well, having a conductor that's there all the time. How was how the change of pace for you to London? What, what, what is that like? Is it, was it a shock?
1: No, yeah. First time I was there, I was like, oh, I have to, you know, I have to be on my, on my, uh, on my toes, really, to, to keep up, you know. And they have to work fast because they don't have so much time. And also they maybe rehearse in a different way space than they have the concert. So they are very, and also some of the, I mean, they tour a lot. So you have to every day like uh, adapt in a way. So they're very fast in that as well. So sure, it was a big change, but that's what made, made it really, really fun as well.
0: Yes, yeah, I mean, it's very different. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because I feel, I don't know how John Wallace seems to think, and I, I agree with him because we're we're dealing with the same thing in North America. That that sort of fast-paced, every day something different, uh, touring, uh, giant seasons—you know—I think it's gonna collapse because of COVID nineteen.
1: Yeah, they—I mean—they have issues now, of course. I don't know in what extent, but they live on their touring. Some of the orchestras. Yeah, it's it's gonna be interesting to see how they come out of this mess. Um, <laughs> but they dug dug the hole themselves, and I mean, I don't think it was it wasn't going to work in the long run with or without COVID-19. It's just sped the process up, I
0: think. So I just want to hear your thoughts on this because I've been talking to a lot of people that are in orchestras and that have been freelancers. You just said it, 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 the problem is already there, a lot of the problems. And yeah. this just made it uh, worse, right? It made it very obvious. Yeah. yeah, and tell me in your eyes, especially from the point of view of uh, a more kind of, Old world orchestra because the Mamo Symphony functions more like, uh, and, and a lot of European orchestras function this way. They function yeah. more like old institutions, which is a good thing, you know, with conductors that actually belong to that orchestra yeah. and with colleagues that are actually members of that orchestra. And yeah. uh, in comparison to North America and Europe, where you have like people in and out of groups and constant flux and yeah. uh, seasons that are. 52 goddamn weeks I mean uh, what in your opinion were the things that you already saw were going to be a problem that are just now super evident Uh,
1: well for for starters the the way of making the touring the central uh, you know how to get money for the orchestra it's a very fragile system but I think that that also has to do with here we have a community and, and Sweden takes care of its orchestras. That's a major part of it. And I think also the security we have as players in, in, in Scandinavia and, and Germany uh, in the long run, it's the most uh, good way to to take care of your musicians and so they, so that you also you know that you can you can play from your twenty two until you're sixty five. Uh, without injuring yourself or burning out, I think that's also a big part of it. I think, I mean, I I haven't been in London. You know, I'm I'm not I've not been there for a year working. I've been there. You know, I've been lucky enough to be to get the the good, very good sides of it. So I haven't experienced myself the bad sides of it. But I, I can imagine it's it's uh, it's tough.
0: Yeah and add to that the cost of living of a city like London, New York, oh, Los Angeles, God. San Francisco. Uh, yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah, I think the touring thing is huge uh but I also think that the touring also reflects a problem that I I think you already touched on which is um the Berlin Phil and the Scandinavian orchestras of so Germany and Scandinavian orchestras and to some degree the French and the Italian they they don't have a they don't necessitate a touring model because the communities in their countries are highly interested in attending uh symphonic culture yeah and and that could also mean opera you know or ballet yeah. Yeah, I mean, in Malmo we have
1: we have uh, three hundred thousand inhabitants. We have two orchestras, one opera house, and, and the um, and the symphony.
0: And they're both well attended. Yeah, yeah. And you're not too far. I mean, you. It's interesting because then you go to a, a, a well. Actually, let's let's backtrack there. You, you guys are like what you would consider a medium-sized city for Sweden.
1: Yeah, we're the third biggest city. So yeah. it's one of the three major. Yeah.
0: But how, like, uh, how, how much bigger are the other two? Like, Gothenburg is almost twice as big as Malmo, right? Almost, yeah. And then, how much bigger is Stockholm than? Stockholm is, uh,
1: I think, it's two million in Stockholm living there.
0: So Gothenburg and Stockholm are sort of similar. No,
1: uh, Stockholm is double the Gothenburg,
0: and the Gothenburg is double U. Yeah. Yeah. So you know. It's so interesting to me that even in population numbers, I mean mm. you got, in Malmö you can sustain a small opera house and a pretty major symphony orchestra, in Gothenburg a major opera house and a major symphony orchestra, and yeah. in Stockholm, same as Gothenburg, but the population... No,
1: no, no, they have uh, they have two major symphony orchestras and a, a very big opera
0: house. So there you go, so you have, <laughs> going back, Malmö has small opera... Big Symphony Orchestra Gothenburg has both our big opera and symphony. And then Stockholm has two major orchestras and a major opera house. Yes. So, I mean, it's astounding that if you were to, I mean, I'm not doing a research paper here, but if you were to analyze that in a very basic form, what you could notice is based on population, there is a need for more culture, which means that people in sweden as a whole seem to be highly interested in it yeah um, and i think it's the same in, Bur- in 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 germany i mean in germany oh, much, even Jesus. more in germany yeah, even more it's
1: much, crazy much more. i think i think somebody told me i don't think i don't know if it's true but i think there are more i i, I don't know if it's true uh, there are more uh, going to classical music concerts than to the bundesliga <laughs> i don't know if that's true I don't know if that's true either. Somebody told me, but I mean, a lot, there's a big interest.
0: <laughs> yeah, there, there is. And also like uh, the, the interest is very legitimate that, uh, you know, I, I, in, in talking to both Mark Gould and Ed and and uh, Burns, we've talked about um, the fact that the programming here in America is not reflective of the culture of America. That if you were to talk about the culture that people are interested in in the United States of America, the symphony orchestra still remains an import that like what remains culturally relevant for Americans, for the average American is mm-hmm. jazz during its time and less so now. And then all the popular musics, you know, f- you know funk and hip hop and rock, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I-, I think it's different in... Scandinavia and in Germany and Austria and to some degree in Italy because of the opera mm-hmm. and in France in the major cities that the, there's, like you said, legitimate interest in attending symphonic concerts and that's very lucky. Yeah. Do you find that the same is true in London in your experience there or what, what does it feel like?
1: It's just so different. I think it's more like North America. I think, I think there's a huge interest, but there's also like so many orchestras, not only the, the, the big five major symphony orchestras, there's so many more ensembles. There's things happening every day and every, everybody has to fight for the audience. And there's amazing level and they're doing very, very good things. But the, the competition between the orchestras, maybe it's not the best, the, the most healthy, maybe, I don't know. Uh, that you know london symphony they play one or two concerts every week whereas in maybe uh, another major city in 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 europe would do 3
0: or or so or 4 and the london symphony in london is the only real european modelled orchestra that uh, the rest of them are largely freelance
1: no london symphony so they they uh, get paid per service as well that
0: oh really but 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 it's uh, the London Symphony and then the BBC orchestras are sort of you audition, you get a job.
1: Yeah, the, the others you audition as well. You, you you get to be a member, so so you you will get you know the first call. You don't have to do everything, but it's the same system as LSO, the, the, the Lin- London Philharmonic, the Royal Philharmonic, and the, who am I forgetting, the Philharmonia.
0: Right. Okay, that's fair enough. So the system works in an audition based and all this, but, I mean, uh, John Wallace sort of equated it to, like, even though these groups have permanent members, they're they're still in many ways freelance pickup groups, in the sense that, like, you can't live off any one of these, except maybe the London Symphony.
1: Uh, uh, No, not even them, I think. Yeah.
0: Partially it's the cost of living in London, but partially it's that it's not designed in that way. And like you said, I think Scandinavian Germany and, you know, I'm starting to see that more and more with Paris, thanks to Lucas, that they they really defend and want their artists around. That it's important for them yeah. to give a good quality of life to their...
1: I think in London, they have so many, their education is very, very good. They have high level orchestras in the conservatories. They educate many, many good musicians. And when there's one job, there's many good, I mean, that's true everywhere, sure. But in London, it's like, there's so much people playing in a very high level. So when it comes to, you know, who wants to, there's no much room for, you know, maybe uh, complaining about their situation as musicians. Do you understand what I mean in a way?
0: You're saying so many people want the job that if you if you don't want it, somebody will.
1: Yeah, if you don't want to do it, somebody will do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you. There's like so much work. So many people that are hungry for it. So many people that are desperate for it. So many people that are well-trained for it. Um, but I, I just don't see the same drive from the people of the cities to consume classical music in the way that i did when i went and saw you guys playing yeah and uh, i i I don't know i think it's very special
1: yeah i think that's true in london there's a huge interest there's just so much (laughs) very very cultural city very vibrant but you don't see that as audience you don't see the the they don't know the situation of the orchestra and also, on the other hand, on the other hand, we are very spoiled, and we, we should know that we we have a good situation here.
0: Well, yeah, but I also feel like, uh, man, I, I I believe very strongly that um, even with uh, the type of artistic socialism that you have in Scandinavia or Germany, mm-hmm. it's revealing of the free market that. The Germans, for example, and I feel like in Scandinavia you guys are very similar, you guys are pragmatic people, culturally speaking. Um, You know, you're pragmatic in a way that Southern Europeans and Latin Americans, we aren't. That uh, I feel that if in Germany nobody of the people was interested in symphony orchestras anymore, Germany would find a better use for their resources. And so with the Scandinavian, they would say like, you know what, nobody wants this. Like, mm. what, what, why should we fund this? And it, not from like a cutthroat capitalistic perspective, but just from like, I think that these are governments that are used to being connected to the needs and desires of their people. So for me, that reveals that in Germany, the people would be the first to be upset if the Berlin Philharmonic disappeared.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: I'm, t- I'm going to tell you honestly, if the LA Philharmonic folds, which it won't, but let's say it, it went out of business, you're going to get a bunch of artistic people very upset, and uh, and we're all going to be appalled that the LA Philharmonic closed, but the general person of LA won't won't care.
1: Yeah. That could happen. I could see that happen here. Not in that extreme way, but there they they would be a major upset, of course. I mean, classical music is still not a majority of people attending of course but there would be I mean people love the the people of Malmo who goes to listen to us is there's a that high of a audience audience number that there would be an outrage
0: for sure. How expensive are tickets to the Malmo symphony typically do you know?
1: And the, the most cheap one is about 10 bucks and up to think around 50 bucks is the best seats, something like that.
0: That's that's another part of it. I mean, it's like uh, because the state is funding it, there's the advantage that they can control the ticket prices. But also, I mean, to some degree, I think that this is a myth from the point of view of the private donor because there's no orchestra wealthier than the Los Angeles Philharmonic, right? Or the Metropolitan Orchestra Mm. opera. Uh, And yet... The most expensive tickets, the ones that are worth having at Disney Hall, so the ones where you will really hear everything, the ones where you'll get the most out of that concert hall, are about two hundred and thirty bucks oh oh, and then from there to the ones that are like pretty good, so we 're talking about the boat, those are like a hundred eighty or something i mean it, it's crazy, and then finally, you get to the quote unquote cheap st- seats, and they do have student rush tickets but you know, it's still 25, 15, you know, and that's okay. But often you end up in like really crappy seats. I mean, I don't no. care what they tell you uh, as far as, oh, the concert hall is amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. And it sounds fine in the, in the cheap seats. But to be honest, I think that when you're trying to get more people to come to your concerts, if I'm a student, I don't care if I'm sitting in the really crappy seats because I know the program. I have an idea of what I'm going to go see. I have a motivation to go see it. But if I'm, you know, a plumber who wants to bring his child to see the orchestra because I've been told that it's important to give my child some culture... And I spend thirty dollars on my ticket, thirty dollars on my son's ticket because those are the cheapest ones. Then we're already at sixty. Let's say I'm married, that's another thirty dollars. Then we're already at ninety. And I want to also bring my wife. Then we're already at one hundred and twenty. So one hundred twenty dollars for a night for a plumber. Okay, pretty good. He's gonna go do it. And then he sits in these awful seats where the where he can barely see the the action, Mm. and it's kind of like you're shooting yourself in the foot to create a, a concert experience i think it's amazing that uh both in scandinavia well it's actually across a lot of european countries i remember getting 10 10 euro tickets to paris opera and yeah. uh, and also to to la scala and uh it's different it's different when you can you feel like there's not a huge divide between you and and the best seat in the house and that in theory if you wanted to go on a really nice date and spend 100 euro and go to the best seats in the momo symphony you could afford that you know most people yeah, could definitely yeah
1: we we are lucky that our politicians still find find the culture as a as a major i mean one of the more dif- uh, important things we have i mean that i hope people realize now in these times that how how incredibly important the culture is when you stay locked in, what do you do? (laughs) And I hope people, I don't know if it's true, but hopefully after all these lockdowns around the world, people will long to come to the concert hall to get the live experience instead of this. I'm I'm not sure if that would happen, but I hope.
0: I think we've lived under the impression that uh, live, that what you just said, that the difference between a live concert and a CD is huge to us. I don't know how true that is to the average person. Mm. Um, And and to be honest, it started to become less important to me in in the sense that it's such a hassle in North America sometimes to go see a concert. Especially in a city like Los Angeles. I have to get in my car. I have to pay $10 for the parking. I have to pay for the ticket. I have to sit in traffic. And all of this so I can go here also, I can hear Beethoven 3 executed with no love to some degree, sometimes. Yeah. And that's partially the problem that North American orchestras have these crazy seasons. So, I mean, you, you kind of adopt this survival mentality. You just play everything through and, and whatever. But it, it, I, it started to lose its luster for me in some ways because also recordings became so good.
1: Yeah. That's also part of the problem we talked about before, the recordings being too good. Uh, you know, people think that a live experience will be as perfect as a CD.
0: Yes. That is, although I wonder how much of that is our own problem as artists.
1: Oh, it's my, our problem. Yeah, sure.
0: That uh, actually my favorite recordings, and I think you and I share this, uh, you and I listen to a lot of old shit. Yeah. You know, George Zell, the, the Reiner recordings with the Chicago Symphony. Uh, yeah. Leonard Bernstein, to some degree, Carrion, the early years. It's, it's all good shit. But if you really listen to that stuff and, and the reason I love it, I don't know, maybe you can tell me why you love it, but why I love it is because a lot of this repertoire was still fresh fresh to some of yeah. these people. Yeah, I mean, they had, they had a real connection. I mean, Burns and I were talking about how we have this idea now that music history is like 3,000 years, but it's really like 400 years of music. And especially the best parts of it happen so quickly. I mean, from Bach To Mozart it's like not that long and from Mozart to Beethoven it's like nothing and from Beethoven to Brahms it's like five years and from that to Wagner List and everything it's nothing and Stravinsky And so there was living memory when Reiner and Bruno Walter and all these guys were conducting there was still living memory of what we're doing the first recordings of Gustav Mahler done by Bruno Walter Klemperer they had known Mahler and then you have the Following Schulte, uh, Bernstein, it was still fresh. Nobody had really heard this music done that way and let alone recorded. And you can tell because you listen to the, for example, the Schulte recording of Mahler 3 with the Chicago Symphony and that trombone solo. The trombonist just interpreted that as much more aggressive than I've, I've ever heard it in any other recording. And that's what excites me. It's like, oh, that shit's different like yeah okay and and you know you hear about Herseth often out of tune and it doesn't matter you know it's it's uh it i I don't know what do you think do you think that that the perfection thing is more a problem of the musicians and we kind of screwed ourselves over
1: yeah absolutely definitely we don't dare to go outside the box in that sense i mean us as musicians and maybe conductors as well Right, it's, it's uh, and also that the way we uh, chose choose repertoire as well. What do you mean? Um, well, orchestras go with still go with the Mahlers, which is great music, but it's the it's centrated around Mahler, Bruckner. There are other things as well we could explore and maybe get this freshness again. I don't know.
0: Yeah, man. I mean, uh, Burns and I talked about that that. Uh... We think that playing, quote unquote, you know, we think that playing the classics is normal because we came from about the last 70, 80 years of doing that, of grabbing the best of, but that before World War II, that wasn't normal, that the normal thing was to go to a lot of awful concerts (laughs) of awful music and then... uh, but that's what mattered. What mattered was what's the latest shit that's being written. Great, and it, it was probably mostly garbage. Even yeah. in Beethoven's time and Haydn's time, I mean, G- uh, Burns pointed out that when Mozart was alive, who we now recognize to be this like genius of form, function, and and particularly melody, the guy who was in vogue and being hired by everyone was Hummel, and who the hell listens to Hummel anymore? I mean, the only Hummel piece I know is the Trumpet Concerto, yeah, which we care so little about that we don't even play it in the right tonality. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we, we are under the impression that these concerts need to be this like spectacle yeah. of genius when in reality, I think even, they don't always have to be. It's, uh, we have to keep moving forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, when we've done it for so long as we have, uh, I think it's hard because we've fed the audience with this for so long. So it's hard to break that cycle we the audience uh, expect us to 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 have this kind of repertoire um, We have to come to a point that we choose the repertoire for them, not the other way around but and they come anyway
0: yeah I, be, I i I blame this a lot on the recording industry, mm. but I understand it, so I understand the impulse you know think of, think about like being. Klemperer or Walter or von Karajan or Bernstein. So that that first kind of generation that, uh, or Schulte, first generation that gets the ability to record. Yep. And it's a novel technology. And who would have imagined that we're going to end up in the digital age, right? So they go to them and they ask, well, what are the things we should record? And of course, what's the answer? Okay, well, we should record the things that are most important to humanity. So what are we going to record? Are we going to record the Homo symphonies? Fuck no. We're going to record the full Beethoven symphony cycles. It's like, okay. So they do that. Great. Tremendous success. But at the time, they're conducting other stuff on the podium. So they're recording Beethoven, and they are conducting Beethoven, but they're also conducting Strauss, who was relatively new at that time or was still in vogue, and... They're conducting Stravinsky in America and they're conducting Bart Talk, which, you know, if we're talking about the 1950s, we're still alive and, and well. Yep. And they're, you know, they're conducting Schoenberg. And yep. then they're like, well, we had tremendous success with those Beethoven records. What would you want to conduct next and record? It. Oh okay, well, we Schulte says, I would like to do a Wagner ring cycle with the Vienna Philharmonic because holy crap isn't that important repertoire. And he does it and it's astounding. And then Uh, You know, then you have Karian recording everything under the sun, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand where it comes from. The part I don't get is when did, like you said, when did the orchestras and the conductors become so pleasing to audiences that they did not resist? I mean, what they should have done is that they should have resisted the moment when the audience members said, oh, we loved your CD or your LP Why don't we hear that this season? They should have said, oh, no, because you have the LP at home. We're not going to hear that. That's why I made an LP. It's so we don't have to play it for three or four years. And instead, they said, oh, what a good idea. Let's do a Beethoven cycle this year. Or let's do the ring again. And I think to some degree, they should have resisted. They should have said, no, no, we're doing Bartok this week. Yeah. And you, like you said, we accustomed audiences to getting what they got at home in the concert hall. And that was all fine and dandy when technology was kind of iffy. I mean, no matter what anyone tells you, the LP doesn't sound like the concert hall. Ooh. But now we get into digital technologies and the FLAC file does really sound quite close to the concert hall. It really does. And I, don't, I even don't know how much better it can get. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you know you have these stereo systems that if you spend enough money it's like holy crap so we, I feel like we broke it and I don't know if we can put it back together again because also you start seeing conductors now that are asked oh we have a recording contract what would you like to record mm. and it's like yeah. I want to record the entire Tchaikovsky symphonies so it's like again like I have recordings by Bernstein Schulte, Karajan uh, Rattle I have recordings by all the most brilliant minds of the 20th century of a Tchaikovsky symphony cycle. Why do I need to know what you have to say about it? What could you possibly bring to it at this point? And in the trumpet, same thing. I mean, How many more recordings of the Haydn trumpet concerto do I need? Do I think it should stop being performed? No, it's a great piece. Mm -hmm. Do I think it should stop being recorded? Absolutely. How much more do you think you're going to give me about the Haydn trumpet concerto?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's difficult i mean it's
0: one uh... well, to me people people like hokan i think it's like the proof and not just hokan you have other people like him in europe especially uh, that people like him and the, the, mostly hokan are, are the proof that people want the new and exciting things yeah i mean the bulk of his repertoire is uh is not the things that we're told at music school people want to hear and it's not because those pieces suck it's because we've decided in conservatories that they're too hard or too weird and they're not by the way i mean audiences love them
1: yeah, yeah yeah it's it's not strange music in any way and if we have i mean if we want to go forward and and create new things we have to show interest to new things as well
0: now in your experience because you have played with Hokan mm-hmm. and his solo is and his solos i mean yeah. you've been in the orchestra for when he plays with mama symphony yeah is is the rehearsing of those pieces any different for you guys than anything else? Is it more difficult or or what's that experience like?
1: Yeah, depending on the piece, some things are trickery in other ways, in time measures and stuff like that, but it, it's nothing strange about it. Absolutely not. It can be more challenging technically, especially for us brass instruments, since a lot of the old stuff is never very technically difficult, but it's, it's nothing weird, nothing strange with it. It's it's music. I think the biggest mistake people do when playing modern stuff is treating it like modern music instead of what it is. It's just quite straightforward music. There's nothing strange about it. Yeah man. But even when you go and play Alban Berg and people think it's too modern, we have a problem, no? We think it's strange. It's gorgeous music.
0: We do have a problem. And I wonder how much of the problem is our own making that... Uh... No, all of it. Definitely. Well, and also we, we've we decided to stop the clock at probably the most intellectually difficult music period I can think of. I think that there is a problem with serial composers in the sense that they were so intellectual and they were all so smart. All of them.
1: Yeah. And we all have had a time, you know, with the Second World War and all the sensor, censorship going yes. on. And when that was lifted in so many countries, Oi, the the possibilities.
0: (laughs) Well, the censorship, but also, I mean, man, I mean, the the second world, you guys had it rough. I mean, European music had it rough, man. Because there's a clear line of, there's a clear path in every country of lineage in some ways. Uh, Hmm. You can tell where everyone came from not where they were going, but where everyone came from. It's very clear that from Bach comes their sons, which are different, but they come from there. And from there comes Haydn, who is different, but very much that. And they all come from Monteverdi, which is very different, but comes from there. And there's like a lineage of who's popular, where's the money going? First it's Italian, then it becomes French, then it becomes German. Yeah. Okay, clear lineage. And that's great then First World War happens. That interrupts a whole generation of artists that either get slaughtered or have to interrupt their work. So you have Debussy driving an ambulance for four years instead of composing. Hmm. But fine. Uh, To some degree, Europe was mangled by the First World War, but a lot of... the The reconstruction after the First World War There was this idea that we would go back to Europe, the European countries as they were, even without monarchies. But, you know, Germany would remain Germany and France would remain... And then you you guys get hit by the Second World War, which completely obliterates that. It kills another generation of artists, particularly Mm. because of the destruction of the Ashkenazi Jews, who were the powerhouses of intellectual and artistic investment. Mm. So you kill that. But also, you kill the lineage because then, by the time Stockhausen and, and Boulez and Nono are trying to study with Messiaen, Messiaen, or with Stravinsky, Stravinsky's on his way out. Yeah, you know, and he 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 can't do it anymore. And Messiaen is so fucked up by the war that his interest in teaching is dwindling. I mean, he oh. he you know if you if you see his retelling. He, he said himself that he had failed the generation of Stockhausen, Nono, and, uh, and Bullet. Okay. that he had given them instruction, but not in the way he got it, No, because okay. he was so fucked up by the idea of nationalism, and, you know, they had seen the destruction of everything. Everyone was just screwed up. Yeah. And so you end up with orphan artists in a very old artistic world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's tough. It's tough to recover from because, like you said, there's all these possibilities. And so Stockhausen, Nono, Boulez, they all go in different directions. And Mauricio Kagel arrives and they, they all go in different directions. And it's all very interesting. But there is a break from the structural hierarchies that had propelled European classical music up until that point.
1: There were so many other things going on in the world. Largely, I mean, how much have the world uh, developed since the 50s, 40s, 50s? It's gone extremely fast in so many ways. It's hard to keep up. <laughs>
0: yeah, and it's, it's also easy to forget, man. I mean, today, mm. I, I talked to Luca and his brother about this. That today, especially here in America, there's this uh, view of European music. And it's like, okay, but before World War II, it was French music and Italian music and German music. Uh, and by the way, these people went out and killed each other over what it meant to be Italian, German, uh you know
1: <laughs> yeah. French and, mean, and... now there's a bridge between Malma and Copenhagen, but Sweden and Denmark are the two countries in the world have had the most wars <laughs> against each other, <laughs> and now we're basically the same people, but
0: yeah yeah, and it's a huge sign of positive progress i mean don't don't okay. get me wrong, but like you said, it went so fast Europe went from being the most volatile, dangerous place in the world. From nineteen hundreds to nineteen forty five, I mean, you guys were the Middle East of the time, mm. uh, and Europe went from that to being this kind of very peaceful, collaborative place. Uh, mm. And like you said, things yeah. were forgotten, which is good that they were, but uh, it also breeds complacency in in thinking that history is over.
1: And now people start to forget this also that we were actually. Like you said, in, in before the 45, Europe, the nationalism was the dangerous thing. But now people seem to forget that as well. Oh man, yeah, that's a whole... But that's, a, that's another, now we're, we're really going from the <laughs> subject at hand.
0: But man, I mean, it doesn't matter. We can talk about this because it's interesting. I, I, I actually feel like uh, what's happening in Europe with the renationalization of things in some ways, yeah. you know, that uh, people are feeling a loss for home uh yeah. it's happening here too it's just it's harder to justify because america is america
1: mm-hmm. and
0: there's nothing else it can be i mean this idea the 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 cultural orphans of this country which is kind of what's happening in europe there's cultural orphans um people born in a time where it no longer means anything to be from a place and uh you're, you're living it here in a different way man there's uh sectarianism in america based on identity and race and preferences that is just absurd man it's become kind of like a nationality to be latino american or to be gay or to be black it's become like oh i'm this and it's like well wait wait a second yes you are but you're also american and that's good you're all kind of in this together no. And it's kind of the same thing you guys are living, except that you guys have a stronger thing to hold on to, which is to say, well, I was born in France. It's like, okay. And, and what does it mean to be French? Oh, I can really define what it means to be French. We, mm. have, we have cuisine, we have language, we have you know, 500 years of architecture and, 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 uh, and art. And you ask an Italian, it's like, oh, it means a bunch of things. You know, we have, uh, and, and it's true. It's true. I mean, Italy and France are very different. Uh, yeah. But you're right. I mean, it's it's weird because we know where this path can lead. Yeah, it's not good.
1: It's not. Well, it's dangerous. When you, I mean, in a way, you d- you divide yourself uh, to other people.
0: And over the dumbest stuff, man. I mean, mm-hmm. You're dividing yourself both here in America and in Europe, based on things that are accidents of birth. But I think in both cases, both in America and in and in Europe. Uh, it's the sad byproduct of, uh, of moving in directions without measuring consequence. If you look at the statistics in, in England, for example, where they tried so hard since the 1960s to open the borders up to immigrants, yeah, uh, there was a prime minister who got essentially lost the race because he said, by my calculations it is possible that British people will be the minority in this country by the year 2000. And they thought, well, that guy's so racist and fucked up, like get, get rid of that guy. And sure enough, I mean, the immigration policies of, of uh, England led to major, major swaths of the country where British nat- nationals are the minority. And even though I don't particularly care about that from a racial point of view, I don't mm-hmm. care where you come from. The part where it becomes complicated, and, and I think it's what you're seeing in Europe, is there was not enough protection of what it means to be British or what it means to be Swedish, depend, uh, regardless of your race. You know, uh, that uh, For me, for example, if I were to move to France and somebody told me, okay, dude, uh, what do you think is culturally what you would need to do to be French? I would be like, okay, well... Tremendous love of culture and art and history uh, and highly, highly, highly value or a high value of liberal thought. This idea that everyone should be able to do whatever they want because under the law and that the state shouldn't tell me what to do. If that, that's how I would boil down friends, Or Mm. if somebody told me, well, what does it mean to be American? I would say, well, it's a lot about individual practices and... The idea that class mobility should be the most important Mm -hmm. thing—that you know, this—the idea of the American dream. That's kind of what it means Uh, to be American. That if you work really hard, you can do anything. I think that some people have migrated to Europe or did migrate to Europe in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that had no interest of being European. Mm -hmm. Um, You see it here in America too, uh, and in America, it's self-created. This idea that you run into somebody on the street, where, "Where are you from?" From Colombia. It's like, oh, that's awesome. I'm from Mexico. It's like, oh, no way. What part of Mexico are you from? Well, I'm not from Mexico. My great great grandfather was Mexican. It's like, okay, so you're not. You're not Mexican. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but you're American. And that's no. a good thing. You guys should be proud of that. No. And, and it's kind of this thing where a lot of immigrants in America and in Europe have been indoctrinated to not really fully accept where they live now. And so when that happens...
1: You have more insight in that since you have made a, a journey like that yourself, of course.
0: Yeah, I but have... I think in, in that sense, what the, what the danger it creates is that when normal people from a country start seeing their country change, it scares the shit out of them. And it it drives them into very bigoted responses. Mm. You know what I mean? Even if they're not bigots.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, but that's what's happening everywhere.
0: It's really fucked up. I mean, but you said from my point of view as an immigrant, um, I don't know, man. Maybe I'm just like very old school in that regard. I I do believe as an immigrant that if I I were to move to Sweden, it would be hugely important to me to learn Swedish. Yeah. Uh, and to in some way adopt as much of that culture as I could because it's a place that's offering me a home. Now, does that mean I'm going to be Swedish? Well, no, I can't be. But mm. let's say I had children in Sweden, I would really want them to be. Yeah. I wouldn't be telling them like, oh, honey, we don't do that because daddy's from a different place. Wow, well, yeah. You know? So, I mean, as an immigrant, maybe I'm different than other people because I don't really relate my identity to where I come from. Does that yeah. make sense? Like I think, yeah,
1: yeah, it makes a lot of sense, I and mean, it's an openness, yeah, as well. And people, some people see it as a as something the complete opposite. What do you mean? That uh, one could argue when you say that you say that people don't want to be open for their kids to become Swedish. That can be some some people can find that uh, offensive. they should they should be they should be able to think and to do and be as they want you know what i mean
0: to some degree i mean i am somewhere in the middle like uh let's say you came to colombia yeah i don't know why but you want to come back (laughs) Uh, you love the culture whatever cool you move to colombia i would of course would expect that you the father and uh, your wife would not fully be able to adopt uh, the, the, you would not be able to become fully Colombian no. to some degree. And that's okay. And of course, it would be kind of bigoted and screwed up of me to say, hey man, I really don't like that you speak Swedish ever at home. Yeah. Stop so eating meatballs. Yeah, stop eating meatballs. This is ridiculous. Uh, and stop having nice ergonomic furniture. That's not how we do things. <laughs> uh, that would be ridiculous. However, if, you decided to create an alternate universe for your children where Mm. you you're not retaining just the parts of your culture that in my idea in my in my mind are culture so like food language etc if you if you decide not just to retain that but also to tell your son this is not your home wow Uh, you have no allegiance to this place that is giving you everything yeah, we have allegiance to a place we left because it was not good over there. Yeah. Now, of course, I can't. Again, in this example, Sweden coming to Colombia, I don't know how you <laughs> justify Sweden to, being a horrible yeah, place. I but <laughs> but I, I, re,
1: I, really get your point. I'm just, I'm just saying, as a, you know, from an objective view, that can be. It, it's, a, it's, it's uh, as you said, a balance, and yeah, but it's important, of course. If you, if you have children and want to make a life for them in a place as well, f- for their own best to, uh, you know, become a part of it instead of, because they were, they will always be aliens otherwise.
0: Yep. And, and also you're kind of uh, betraying something sad, which is you moved to a place because of the opportunities that place gives you, Ooh. but then you don't see that you're destroying the very system that gave you those opportunities by not creating more citizens of that country. Mm. And again, my problem with what is happening, or not problem, but my concern with what's happening in Europe in in both ends, the nationalization, but also the attack of European culture is unreal. Because to me, from a completely racial perspective, I don't care if the French race survives. Mm. I really don't. I don't think that it'll matter. I mean to some degree the French race from the 18 1700s does not exist anymore. It's mm. already been mixed especially, especially after the Second World War or like, the German race it's moving or moving the...
1: around since the dawn of time. I mean it's... exactly.
0: That matters zero to me. It does mm. not matter at all where you where what your skin complexion is, what your genetics are. I don't care one bit. But what matters terribly to me is to be to be European is to inherit some of the best things in culture. I I know that it's under attack right now from everywhere that that, uh, Europe was created from the plunder of everywhere else. It's like, okay, yes. However, Beethoven was not the king of Germany. Like this dude lived like shit and he was washing himself with a bucket. Like he wasn't living in Versailles. And you know, not every European person on on Earth was living in Downton Abbey before 1940. You know, like everyone around the world that's been poor, everyone until now has had a horrible life. Like absolutely. it's changed now because we have running water. <laughs> before 1900s, Sweden was absolutely horrible.
1: Famine and and it was horrible. I mean, that's why. I think a third of the country migrated to the U.S.
0: Yeah. Um, a... Well, and think about like Russia. Like Russia had legal slavery until 1930. I mean, that this serfdom is slavery. That's, uh... so, you know, I, I resent a little bit this idea that uh, everyone in Europe was living with a, a gold knife and spoon. Uh, they weren't. And so, and a lot of the creators of culture were very impoverished. I mean, it's not like the great... So my point being, European culture to me is so beautiful. And, and I could say the same thing about Persian culture with Rumi and, and some other poets, that it's very important to me that we protect the ideas that humanity has advanced on that are good. Um, mm-hmm. In the same way, Europe has become an incredible place in adopting the American democratic system. Which it did not have before America in 1776 decided to try it out, right? Um, That's true. So I, I, it's it's weird, man. It's weird what's happening in Europe because I think it's so dangerous. The reaction people are having, it's dark. It's dark, but it's also, as I see it, Gustav. I think it's also an opportunity because it's yeah, a. It's. I mean. It's a, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No,
1: nothing is so bad that doesn't have something good come out of it. Of course. But it will be, it will be, I mean, it won't be pretty, (laughs) but maybe it's what's needed in a way. How horrible it is.
0: Well, let's explore that because just quickly, let's talk about like, what do you think the lessons we can learn, not just in America, but particularly American London, but, but in general, what are the things you, can, you think we should learn from what's happening right now, like as in artistic institutions? Like if we imagine this as the complete collapse of the system, which is not going to be, but let's imagine it that way. Complete collapse of the system, you and I are given carte blanche to rebuild yeah. academia and artistic institutions. What are the things we get rid of and what are the things we start promoting based on what we're seeing happening now.
1: Yeah. I had an interesting conversation with Håkan about it and he, he had a good point about you know maybe, maybe soon in Sweden we can let in let's say 500 people in, in the audience. Now it's 50 and we don't even have, have an audience. So okay. We have a great opportunity because those 500 people coming, they will be, they will be coming. 500 people, we know that we have that many, you know, core uh, audience. Perfect time to, you know, play this, show them not the classics, show them the new things, show them interesting things, show them, and then you know, show they will come anyway. Now is the time to do that. Not think, oh, no, economy, we need to play things that pe- so people come, that we are we have to play Mozart 40 and we need to play Beethoven Five every week was nine. you know Now is it the time to to do this? you know, and that's in the long run if if we can dare to do that, I think we can win a lot. But it's also a gamble. But in the long run, I think you know now is the time to think. Long term.
0: Yes. And I, okay, so that's one. So you say we introduce them to new things and I agree with you. It is a gamble because it's a gamble. That's, that's how it is. However, it's also, like you said, moments like these don't come necessarily. Again, there's a great moment. People want to get out of the house for whatever reason. Mm. They just want to go to the concert hall to be somewhere other than their house. It's yeah. a great time. You kind of have them hostage, reeducate them. Mm. So that's one thing. I'm totally down with that. Yeah. What about how would you structure, what changes, do you need th- what changes do you think need to be made based on the economy that we are seeing now, but that was already happening? Uh, it's just like you said, this accelerated everything. What changes do we need to make in academia as far as teaching our students? What, what things need to go and what things need to come in? Oh,
1: It's a very hard question to answer.
0: Well, I'll start with one, and maybe this yeah. will help you. I think a huge part of it is we, at least in North America, but I, you know, I honestly, I saw it in Europe too when I was living in Italy. Um, we need to get away from the idea that orchestras are the end-all be-all and the most secure job, because they're proving to collapse very quickly in some parts of the world. But mm. like you said, this was something we were already seeing. like. There's too many competent people to fill very few positions. So what happens to all the people that don't win the job? Are you just going to get frustrated or are you going to do something else? So for me, something that needs to go is the emphasis on solely orchestral technique. Yeah. And I would bring in... I
1: mean, yeah, but
0: I... Not to
1: be like that, but that's that's how we work right
0: now. Uh, but in what Mama, do you mean? But oh, no, we... like you you guys are already teaching that in Mama. I would say, yeah. Yeah, no, and that's good. I'm not saying everyone's doing it, but
1: uh, but I think... not, I'm not sure. I'm I'm I'm. Uh, that's that's in general. I mean, yeah, it's a good opportunity now to of course do it. But I think the opposite will happen because orchestras are still the most Uh, secure job
0: in Scandinavia and Germany France but man I don't know about that here Okay, I mean if you would have told me that the most artistically secure job six months ago I would have told you hey if you get a job at the Metropolitan Opera you're set or at the LA Phil Uh, now these people have hundreds of thousands of dollars of expenses that they can't cover so is that safer or is it safer like we're seeing with the pop world and the jazz world, that you were trained to record yourself at home, that you were trained to compose, that you were yeah. trained to get a call and, hey, do you want to record a little ditty for this song? Sure. I'll put that into Pro Tools. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what the economy looks like at the end of this for the arts. I I understand that in Scandinavia and Germany, the orchestra will be fine and alive. And I think you'll have to burn those countries down before you see them collapse at least for the next century. But as far as educating people, I don't know. I mean, like you said, you're doing it in Malmo, but, uh, I think there, there has to be an emphasis on, on what are you doing in music school? Like, why did, why did you show up here? What, thrills you
1: yeah but also I think I I don't know what will happen but you know going into the cultural uh, you know when you're 16 and have to decide after this will people actually do it will people say hey this is my dream but you know it's so fragile (laughs) it was already and hard what will happen now? And that can, it's always good to have many people wanting to become musicians, but we're seeing a world where so many people get educated into a business with very few work opportunities.
0: I actually think it's a huge positive thing if a lot of people decide not to become musicians. Um, yeah. I also think that it will, it will allow the most interesting voices to be heard again. I, not to disparage anyone that's currently working in North America, but I don't think there's, like Gould said the other day to me, the last holdout of the American trumpet school is Mike Sachs. Everything after him is sort of vanilla, very, very competent, amazing, but very vanilla trumpet playing. Uh, the generation before you have Mel Broyles, Bud Herseth, uh, Armando Catala, Um yeah you know, Tom, you have these amazing, Mark Gould, you have these amazing voices that are hard, a little bit hard to deal with, but damn, okay, I'm down. Maybe weeding out all these people that are more conscious of their finances, which they should be, promotes the ones that really want to do it. Because at the end, it'll take that crazy person to be like, no, no, really, I really need to do this. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe uh, that is... I agree. That's a positive thing. That but could be. Do you think... Uh, I mean, you can't predict the future, but I'm assuming um, there will be cuts in, in the funding, for even in Europe, for conservatories and stuff like this, right?
1: Not that we heard so far.
0: Oh, that's good. Because I, I wonder in music schools here in the US, I mean, that'll have to happen. There'll be less scholarships. So at the same time, it'll make people be... Well, one of two things will happen. They'll start accepting a bunch of idiots with a lot of money or they'll really hone in on who they really want to educate with the limited funding they have.
1: Yep. Okay, you know, that's- Again, the, the, there, there's our, our system is more secure there because it's, it's free. We have no like, interest in your wallet. The schools have no interest in money from the student per se. I mean, the schools get money if the student, you know, if the student passes the course, finish their degree, then the school gets money.
0: Yeah, it's and I, I honestly, a lot of what we're talking about is maybe in the education realm is more applicable to the United States. That I think it's it people might disagree with me, but I think it might be positive that some schools go, aren't able to offer a music degree anymore. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of messed up for me to say it because like you say, I think it's great that everyone gets an opportunity to do what they want. And it's a very rare moment in history where people have been able to do that. That didn't used to be the case before the 1950s, Mm -hmm. you know, but at the same time, if you look at America, uh, Back in the day, back and not too long ago, up until about the 70s, there were only really a handful of musical schools that were respectable. That if you were going to have a career in music, you had to go to Juilliard, you had to go to Curtis, you had to go to Northwestern, um, USC to some degree, but that came later, you know, like when Tom was there and whatever. But that was it. That was the ticket. You had like, four or five schools that were respectable the rest were kind of eh, yeah they offer a music degree but it's for people that don't want to be musicians Um, now everyone and their mother has a good orchestra in America Mm. and on top of that not only does everyone have a good music a good music school but everyone's offering doctorate and it's uh, okay I would be okay with all of that disappearing to some degree Mm. It's sad, because if you didn't get into Juilliard, then your dream's over, And that's sad. But it's
1: sometimes it's the more, you know responsible thing to do as well. If you, if you take in 10 people a year and saying, "You're all going to make it, you're, you're lying." And even back then,, were, I mean, the vast majority did not
0: like make their dream. Even at the big schools, I mean, Ed, Ed talks about his, his uh, graduating class mm-hmm. at Juilliard. Yeah. And he was there with Phil Smith and uh, Manny Laureano. And uh, I can't remember. He named like a hum- handful of people, but he said it was like four people that we know of. And they are really well known. It's like, okay, all of them are super well known from that graduating class. But that there were like 20 that were just paying the light bill you know for juilliard that didn't amount to very much so it, it always happens you're right but it's different when you're you know you have a crop of 20 of which four are going to make it and then the rest don't make it as yeah. musicians that's sad but what we're currently experiencing in north america is still the same number of spots it's just more people <laughs>
1: I mean, the the jobs are not growing. Orchestras are not getting more and
0: more. No, I mean, 2008 took a huge hit. The crisis took a huge hit in America. Like, a lot of orchestras went under. And I'm 100% sure that we're going to start seeing orchestras folding now. Because this is a worse recession than the last one. Yeah. So, you know, I think the LA Phil will survive. And the Chicago and Philly and (laughs) New York. Because patrons will come through. Yeah. To some degree, they they might look different, but they survive. But the B plus orchestra survive. But then from there down, it's like, okay, good luck. <laughs> but okay, so we talked. You change the repertoire. You change education, to some degree. I I do think. Also, beyond the skills of of what we're teaching at conservatories, the other thing that needs reform, like I said, uh, classical musicians need to be better at content creation of their own and at uh, recording technologies and uh, editing technologies.
1: Yeah, that's a good thing coming out of it. I mean, also for my orchestra, we didn't stream at all before this, and now we have uh, quite a bit going on and they are getting better and better at it and getting better
0: yeah you guys have done great stuff i mean the, the is the orchestra basically uh prom, they're hosting it but uh, the, was it their idea to have Goose, uh, to have uh, a do the charlies or
1: um i think it was i mean it was Håkan's idea uh, but he's the on, we have him as an honorary artist so it's a coll- collaboration that's good yeah
0: cuz also he did that concert with the you know, from mostly from that CD of both sides now. Yeah. A great concert. Yeah. Yeah, but you guys are killing it, man. Uh, and, and, it'll come again uh, this summer if
1: if people want to listen.
0: Uh, that's great. And I think, yeah. you know, it's good that your orchestra is doing it. But it would be great if students are taught to do that too. I mean, and and like jazz artists and pop musicians are showing us, it's not terribly difficult. You know, grab your oh. iPhone, know a little bit about mixing and technology, make it look good. And on... <laughs> I mean, Gould and I talked about how awful, awful, just absolutely dreadful 99% of the things classical musicians have been posting are. Yeah. yeah. oh, Just... Yeah. <laughs> Complete dribble, man. <laughs> I don't know.
1: That's why it's nice that Hawkan has the... I mean, that we do this with him. So, like, he stands in the concert hall. Sounds great. And, uh, yeah. Of but also,
0: gym. I think there's something cool about how special that is.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: True. It's like a special moment every Monday where I turn on my YouTube thing and listen to Hokan, And it's not this, like, amateur I'm in a basement playing an etude. You know, it's and then his care and detail for the music. It's be- I had never heard the Charlie is played that way. I hope it becomes the new normal, because it's well-needed. I mean, for me, it's becoming the new normal. I'm not saying that I can play them like Hokan, but I, I mean, when he no, played no, the- points not
1: the point either.
0: No, but when he played the first one, as soon as I heard the first one, I took out my book, and I was like, I had never, I, I've studied the crap out of this etude yeah. multiple times in my life, I had never heard that phrase. No, you know what I mean it's like what the hell was that like that doesn't sound like the same etude the beginning sounded the same blah 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 and then all of a sudden you realize what is that Mm. and I I agree and it's not about copying him but it's about I don't think I'd ever thought of these etudes as so good before Mm. I knew they were useful
1: yeah Yeah. they are useful for many technical things but for so many other things colors reading music they are very well uh, notated Very
0: clear. Super good. Yeah, man. Well, we talked for a while. It's nice seeing you. Likewise.